Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. Good morning on this Tuesday, the 23rd of March, 2021. Uh, a quarter of the year is almost over. That seems um, kind of astonishing. Uh, where in the word are you today? I am in Mark chapter 4. We are reading through the gospel of Mark in the lead up to Easter in these final weeks of the season of Lent. And so it's not too late to join us. You can go to MyFaithRadio.com and join us in the Lenten reading plan or the Linton experience. Um, you can register uh, to win a copy of Alistair Begg's Gospel of Mark sermon series from Truth For Life. So you can do all of that at MyFaithRadio.com. We're in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Mark today. Jesus offers here or is recorded uh, here by Mark uh, as offering the uh, what we would all know as um, the parable of the seed and the sower. He also talks about the purpose of the parables and um, offers that, you know, light is not supposed to be put under a basket. It's a good reminder today to live live in the fullness of the light of the glory of God and as extensions of it to others. We then have the parable of the growing seed and the parable of the mustard seed. All of that is uh, chronicled in the fourth chapter of the gospel according to Mark. And then when you pick up at verse 35, uh, you get this. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, uh, he took with, uh, they took him with them in a boat, and just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was filling up. But Jesus was asleep in the stern. They woke him up and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's a good question for us to be asking. Who is this? Who is this? Yesterday, an altered American flag with an extra star for the District of Columbia flew in the Black Lives Matter plaza next to the White House as Democrats launched a fresh push for statehood for the nation's capital. Uh, There are Democrats ruling both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue, and so D.C. statehood, um, as well as statehood for Puerto Rico, probably have their greatest chances ever I'm going to ask Dr. Mark Caleb Smith about that next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen.
Joining me again today, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Mark, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. How you doing? I'm. I am well. I am well. Let's um, let's jump in with um, efforts to renew civic education in schools, and then let's bring people up to speed on the renewed push for DC statehood. All right, it sounds good. There's a significant movement to uh, increase civics in the United States. You know, as a political science professor, I like the idea of uh, improving civics and civics education throughout our country. Uh, but this, you know, I'm not sure I like this approach necessarily. <laughs> this would be a billion-dollar grant from the federal government, uh, which I, I fear would lead to kind of a nationalized curriculum when it comes to civics and U.S. history. Uh, and I think there'd be a lot of problems potentially that might fall out from that. All right. So, you know, when we talk about civics, let's just remind people what we're talking about. I think that many of us um, got some form of civics education when we were in school, but not every school teaches civics today. And certainly not every school teaches the same things when they are teaching civics. So what's sort of the what's the ongoing debate in terms of what is taught and whether or not it's taught? Yeah, a lot of states actually, I think I want to say it's close to 20 states really don't require significant civics education at all. So they don't really require students to learn uh, deep information about American government during their high school years. Uh, I think it's true that for every state, uh, there is education at the elementary and middle school level, uh, but not necessarily at that high school level. There's a tremendous amount of variability in our system when it comes to what is taught uh, in a classroom when it relates to American government. And I think at some level that's healthy because uh, what is focused on and prioritized in a place like California may be really different than what's prioritized in a place like Ohio or South Carolina or Minnesota or Tennessee or wherever uh, we might be thinking of. And so there's a lot of variability there. Um, and you can imagine teaching about government can get extraordinarily political, right? I mean, the, the teachers as well as the curriculum can tilt information in a certain way. And so you even begin with some basic predispositions. You know, how do we think of American government? Do we see it as a positive? Do we see it as a negative? How do we think of the founding and the founding documents? Do we see those as something to emulate and to, uh, to support, or do we see those as something to critique and to move away from? Uh, and even some of those basic questions can really dictate uh, the values that get taught to students in those settings. Absolutely. All right. So um, when I went to uh, when I went to school, uh, one of the things that we learned was that there are 50 states in the U.S. Uh, and there are 50 stars on the flag. Yesterday, a flag with 51 stars uh, flew uh, next to the White House in Washington, D.C. What is going on with the renewed push for D.C. and also Puerto Rican statehood? Yeah, it's been, what has it been, 60 years at least, I think, more than 60 years since we've added a state. And so uh, this would be a new thing for much of our population to think about even adding a state. This is a, you know, I, I guess every action the government takes when you think of adding a state uh, is political. Uh, but this is an extraordinarily political maneuver, I think, right now. Uh, Democrats are making arguments that D.C. should become a state <clears throat> and if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., you know that their license plates uh, that for cars that are registered, registered there read no taxation without representation on the bottom of them. And so there's been this push for D.C. statehood uh, out of this sense that the residents of the District of Columbia really aren't treated equally. You know, that they have taxation 
but they don't have equal representation when it comes to the Senate uh, or to the House of Representatives. Uh, they get to vote in presidential elections. They have electoral college votes that are attached to them. They have three electoral college votes, uh, but they don't really have more representation than that. And from their perspective, you know, D.C. now is as big as Wyoming when it comes to population or as big as Vermont. And so they would argue that maybe they should deserve uh, two senators and they should deserve at least one U.S. House member. And that makes some sense at an intuitive level. Uh, but we all know, of course, if that happens, that those are going to be Democratic senators and a Democratic representative. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons we're seeing the push right now. Uh, the Senate is tied 50-50. Uh, if Democrats could somehow push this through and add two senators to that tally, uh, then I think they feel like they could maintain control of the Senate more effectively uh, moving into the future. So it doesn't surprise me. We'll see similar thinking when it comes to Puerto Rico. Um, and again, I think the assumption there is Democrats would win those seats and Republicans might be in trouble. So I expect it to continue. There are good arguments against it, uh, constitutional arguments, legal arguments, practical arguments. Uh, but I'm not sure this is really going to move forward. I think mostly it's theater right now. Hmm. Okay. All right. Um, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, um, love to have a little March Madness conversation with you. I was intrigued by a story um, in the Associated Press about a pregame prayer offered by Sister Jean Dolores Schmidt. She is notably 101 years old. Um, but I just thought it gave us an opportunity to talk about sort of prayer in public and the ongoing conversation about that. So I'm talking with Professor Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University, and we'll be right back. Okay, because a lot of people in America care about basketball, we're going to talk about it very briefly here. Uh, my Christian angle is apparently teams, at least some teams, still have chaplains. I think that's curious. They still pray before games. They still pray for their teams to prevail in games. And sometimes they, um, you know, I don't know, the prayer is efficacious and uh, they are able to upset number one seeds like Illinois. So we are talking here about um, Loyola, I think. Loyola, Chicago. Yeah, there are several Loyolas. We're talking about Loyola, Chicago, and I'm not talking about it very effectively. Tell us what's going on. Just weigh in here, Mark. Just jump in. I know so little about this. I mean, I know a lot about prayer and very little about basketball. Um, so Sister Jean Schmidt, who's a 101-year-old 101 101-year-old uh, nun, uh, is the chaplain for the Loyola Chicago uh, men's college basketball team. And she prayed before their game uh, recently. And uh, her prayer sort of got leaked out and was was known. And if you read it and, and hear it, it's really more like a scouting report. You know, it's, well, if we do this and if we do that, then God will bless us. If we rebound, if we convert those uh, mid-range jump shots, then we have a chance to be victorious against the evil uh, fighting Illini of Illinois. So uh, it's quite a quite a prayer. And uh, I think uh, I'm sure roused her her team to to a great victory, really. I mean, there was a huge upset. Um, and they've moved into the Sweet 16 uh, as something of an underdog. But it does bring up a lot of issues, as you said, you know, about prayer in public and public spaces and how we're so touchy about that. Um, and here we see an example of an unabashed prayer and really people who simply are embracing it and moving on. And so it does create, I'm sure, some cultural confusion for some people. 
I think so. I think that there are, you know, there are there are storylines and threads that we could pull here that most people are not going to pay any attention to, um, right. but are are maybe provocative to ask. Um, I think that a conversation about um, chaplains for sports teams and how we pray and what we pray and why we pray in those environments and what's being taught to these college students about all of that. Um, I think seeing a nun. Um, as a chaplain of a men's basketball team could provoke interesting conversations for some people about the role of women um, in, you know, in positions of uh, ecclesial leadership. I think there are opportunities here for conversation, um, you know, at lots of levels. The fact that the AP reported on it and did so, you know, so joyfully and enthusiastically, right? Like there's no condemnation at all. And I'm wondering if the, you know, if, if the AP has been as generous when a coach has kneeled um, in the center of a football field in Texas with his team. Like, right, that's a different storyline. Like, when that happens, that guy gets, I mean, you know, he loses his job um, and, you know, and the the school is heavily criticized. So, I, you know, I just think that there are conversations here to be had, um, you know, at at a cultural level. Uh, and I agree. And it's interesting that uh, a chaplain is getting this kind of attention. Of course, she's older. She's charming. Uh, she's been vaccinated. She's at the games, which I think is interesting and adds a wrinkle to it as well. Uh, she's, Loyal inside is a the, she's inside the okay. bubble. Absolutely. She is inside the bubble. But Loyal is a Jesuit school. And so at some level, it shouldn't surprise us that they would engage in this kind of religious uh, education. And it's still talked about this way. But um, and then we've a lot of the controversies we've seen with a football coach kneeling or others praying at athletic events is usually involved public high schools. Um, and although that used to be very common and known and accepted part of our culture, the Supreme Court has really stepped in and curtailed a lot of that activity, which, again, has created, I think, a great deal of conflict. And I think confusion at some, way, some level about when it's appropriate, when it's not appropriate to have public prayer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Um, let's see. What else should you and I talk about today? Um, how about what's going on in South Dakota? Um, bring people up to date on what's happening there. So South Dakota, like other states, uh, is sort of working its way through how to deal uh, potentially with transgender athletes, uh, particularly in women's sports. And so are we going to allow a biological male uh, who identifies as female uh, to compete against biological females. And South Dakota is dealing with that. Their legislature uh, passed a bill that would forbid that. Um, and Christy Nome, who's been really kind of a culture warrior in a lot of ways when it comes to being governor of South Dakota, uh, especially as it relates to the pandemic, you know, she's been really at the front end of resisting efforts to lock down and, and mask mandates and things like that. She vetoed that bill. Uh, sent it back to the legislature and said that she was concerned that it might bring a challenge from the NCAA, that uh, South Dakota could really maybe lose uh, its attachments to the NCAA and face some kind of punishment or at least uh, lawsuits over this bill. And, you know, if you remember, uh, if we remember our recent history, North Carolina passed a bill on bathrooms and transgenderism, and the NCAA jumped in with both feet. And basically said, well, we're not going to hold events uh, in North Carolina if this piece of legislation gets enacted and implemented. And so I can understand why people would be upset with her 
Uh, and given her profile, I, I would agree with them. They should be upset with her. But I also understand where she's coming from politically. Uh, the NCAA does not mess around with these kinds of things. They do get involved. And so I think she's trying to figure out a way to kind of a middle path maybe where she can hold off the NCAA on the one hand but still embrace this on the other. But it's going to be really difficult to do. She's gotten a lot of criticism for her veto of the bill. And the NCAA um, has a lot of mixed messaging um, or at yes. least in, in, incomplete messaging on the topic as well. So she's probably right to be uh, you know, a little bit confused in terms of the NCAA's standing, but, you know, she's not the governor of the NCAA. That's all I would say about that. She's the governor of South Dakota. and Maybe those people ought to communicate with their governor how they feel. That's all I'll say. Because um, some of them are listening in the beautiful city of Sioux Falls. Um, all right. Give us a give us an explainer, explainer on libertarianism. I see uh, the word libertarian and references to libertarianism in a number of places that are, uh, frankly, kind of new. Um, and so I, I'd like just a, a basic explainer on it. So libertarianism is a political ideology. So, you know, think of it as sort of analogous to conservatism or progressivism, liberalism. Uh, it's just it's another political ideology, but it's different uh, in that it really tries to emphasize freedom, uh, individual freedom as it relates to economics, as well as social and cultural issues as well. And so libertarians want to minimize as much as possible the role of the government, whether that's local government, state government, federal government, they want as small government as, as feasible. Um, in their mind, the government really exists to do things like guarantee contracts uh, to you know, operate jails and to operate other things to make sure that we have a criminal justice system that's effective. But even that, they would want to be very small and very limited. And so for many things that we would think of as illegal, like uh, drug usage, libertarians would say, you know what, that really shouldn't be against the law because individuals should be able to uh, to use drugs as they see fit. Uh, they oppose uh, things like welfare programs, uh, entitlement programs. They're going to oppose certainly expanded health care. And so they really want a reduced government footprint. For years, I think the Republican Party has been a, a you know, sometimes partner with libertarians because they could at least make those arguments economically. And I think many libertarians kind of found a home in the GOP, at least for a period of time. Um, but that's I think that's coming to an end. At least it looks like it right now. Republicans are really uh, moving away from at least it feels like they're moving away from small government rhetoric, lower tax rhetoric, less spending. Uh, those don't seem to be, pro be priorities right now in the GOP. And so I think that's creating some afraid relationship with libertarians and the Republican Party. Okay, so um, do libertarians have a party? And if so, who would be an exemplar of it? So they do have a party, and they do off, they do frequently run presidential candidates and other candidates for federal office and local offices. Uh, Justin Amash is probably the most high-profile libertarian at the moment. Uh, he was a former member of Congress, a Republican from Grand Rapids, Michigan. He left the Republican Party, uh, became an independent as a member of Congress, and after leaving Congress, he's now really transitioned fully into the Libertarian Party. And so he's becoming a standard bearer of a kind uh, for that party. He just sees the GOP as fed up and, and really corrupted at some level from its basic messaging. Uh, Amos is a really strong Trump critic and has really been critical of the Republican leadership in Congress for years now. And in some ways, this kind of feels like a natural transition for him. Um, so, yeah, it, it is an effective party, but it's definitely one of those small parties 
It has a hard time getting over three, four, five percent of the vote in most elections. Uh, I, I think that the conversations about um, maybe how the landscape continues to change uh, among Democrats and Republicans, there's a lot of folks not comfortable in you know, yes. in the Democratic Party, there's a lot of people not comfortable yep. in the GOP. Where do they go? Um, yep. What do they become? What are they really? And as you have described or explained libertarianism, my my bet is there's some people listening who who are saying to themselves, um, "Hey, that actually that actually sounds like me." Um, and so I, I just thought it would be helpful to kind of visit the topic um, because I have the expectation that we're going to. We're going to hear about the, you know, the fomenting yes. and flourishing of all kinds of, of ideas going forward um, here in sort of American civil life. So I thought having a little splainer on libertarianism might be helpful. And you did it beautifully. So thank you so much. <laughs> hey, if you want a good book on it, Charles Murray's What It Means to Be Libertarian is a really good short book on it. So all I'd right. encourage you to pick that up. Yep. Charles Murray, What It Means to Be Libertarian. Yep. All right. Thanks, man. That's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, um, even with a book recommendation today. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Hey, thank we'll you. be right back. Yep, take care. Absolutely. All right. Lots of uh, lots of things going on in the world, not least of which uh, is the trafficking of persons. You hear human trafficking reports frequently. My guess is if you're paying attention, um, you recognize that here in the United States, it is um, a, a genuine crisis, particularly among young people. What would it look like to mobilize youth to combat human trafficking? Um, well, Michelle Rickett asked and is answering that question. So I want to introduce you to Michelle Rickett, and I want to introduce you to She Is Safe, a Christian nonprofit uh, that is working to not only rescue and restore women and girls from abuse and slavery uh, around the globe, but equipping youth right here at home. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. When was the last time you asked your teenager a question, then waited for the answer? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I've found that one of the most important tools in a parent's toolbox doesn't cost a thing. It's the effort to ask a question and then taking the time to listen for the answer. When I coach parents in connecting with their teen, I give them three things to think about. First, ask relevant questions. Don't fake it. Second, let them think about the answer. Don't supply it. And third, value their response. Don't correct it. When you do, you're communicating that you respect your teen. So let me ask you again. When was the last time you asked your teen a really thoughtful question? Find more parenting help from Mark Gregston at ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. March 16th was My Freedom Day. Students took a stand across the country and around the world against modern-day slavery. Uh, the effort is a part of She Is Safe. Michelle Rickett joins me now, founder and CEO of She Is Safe. Michelle, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. 
It's wonderful to have you. Um, let's let's start with um, my Freedom Day, which was technically on March the sixteenth. But today could be my Freedom Day as well if folks uh, chose to chose to ignite their passion on this issue. That's right. Uh, we are excited, uh, and she is safe to live in a time when so many people are becoming more and more aware of modern slavery, that we have more slaves in the world than any other time in human history. Uh, But we also have wonderful interventions, uh, not only She is Safe, but many other organizations and law enforcement to do the work of prevention and rescue and restoration. But uh, this was a student-led initiative. Uh, Just a couple of teen girls at the International School in Atlanta said, what if we mobilized kids and they could become more aware they'd be safer and they could speak up. And so they started a social media initiative about four years ago. And uh, one of the girls had um, a family member who worked at CNN and they kind of pitched the idea to him. Let's, Let's see what we can do. Well, last year there were 750 million impressions on Twitter uh, for My Freedom Day, where kids were answering the question, what does freedom mean to me? And then this year, the question a little bit deeper is, what am I doing to end slavery? And so let me pose that question to you, um, Michelle. What are you doing to end slavery? And I'm hoping here you'll introduce people to sheisafe.org. Well, thanks, Carmen. Yes, uh, my husband and I and a group of praying friends started She Is Safe about 20 years ago. Uh, We were career missionaries and saw firsthand the selling of girls and women uh, across the African continent, throughout the Middle East and throughout Asia. And that was in the 80s. So no one was talking about modern slavery or human trafficking. We just thought, surely Christians ought to be on the front of this issue. Uh, These are uh, people made in the image of God. And um, there ought to be at least one mission that focuses on those who are underserved. Um, And the more we looked into it, of course, the more we realized that this was a very pervasive issue. Uh, Now we have all of the studies and research put out by um, the Global Slavery Index each year, and the State Department puts out the Trafficking in Persons Report, and it tells us that the majority of all slaves everywhere are mostly throughout Asia. Uh, Most are female, over 70%, unless you're talking about sex slavery, and then it's 99% female. So Mm. she is safe. Um, We work now in seven countries, very high-risk communities there, identifying, you know, what are the things that make people vulnerable to slavery? Can we prevent that? Can we get ahead of things there with local Christians and local churches, boots on the ground that we partner together with? If not, uh, how should we do rescue in a given context? And then what about the restoration? So we do uh, all of those three things arm in arm. Uh, Last year, we saw about 25,870 individual women and girls in one of our programs of prevention, rescue, or restoration. And then another 63,000 children were introduced to 10 Tips to Safety. I'm talking with Michelle Rickett. If you're listening right now and you're saying, I want to know so much more about all of this, I'm going to invite you to the website, sheissafe.org. 
Um, Michelle also um, has a book, Forgotten Girls. It won InterVarsity Press's Reader, Reader's Choice Award. It's been voted one of the top 10 books to read in the area of faith and justice. So the book is Forgotten Girls. Um, the website is sheissafe.org. Michelle, um, when you talk about, you know, 10 tips for staying safe, um, maybe you could share with us some ideas for how teenagers um, and even even those who are maybe tweens could learn to stay safe um, and then talk about how they can also combat human trafficking. Well, yes, it, it really does start with awareness. Um if our lives seem perfectly normal and safe and we have protective parents, we can be a bit naive and not realize that there are those who would use, say, our gaming platforms just to introduce themselves as a kid when really it may be somebody much older, much more sophisticated, trying to lure us into something. So having these conversations with our kids, that's one of the things that Tips for Safety is all about is well, we just want to get it sort of on the kitchen table. Uh, let's talk about this scary topic, but in an age-appropriate way, um, beginning with every single person's body is a gift from God and deserves to be nurtured and protected. And uh, when we can open our eyes not only to our own vulnerabilities, but to our friends as well and and Carmen, that's my story. I was rescued from a trafficking situation, um, my home. My father was a pedophile, and um, I talked to a girl at school, and she was so alarmed with what she heard. She told her mom, and her mom called the school, and Department of Family and Children Services got me out of that home in a day. Mm. So it was just one kid who she didn't have a problem, but she it sounded to her like I was in a distressing situation. And so she talked it through with her mom. So that's one of the stories I love to tell kids is maybe you feel perfectly safe. Maybe you know about the dangers out there, but um, talk to your friends, especially if you notice something different. Let's say uh, suddenly if they're flashing a lot of money around or they are afraid to answer any questions because Someone else tells them the right things to say. And there are any number of danger points, especially here in the U.S., but um, overseas often the, the issues are a little bit different, uh, though it all comes down to vulnerability, either because we're young and naive or because we have nowhere else to turn, nobody to talk to, or um, because it, our family is in need. And that's often the case with the, the girls and women that she is safe help uh, where uh, families are living in, say, a refugee camp or in a red light district or in the temptation and the lure uh, is in front of them all of the time. And sometimes mothers make that terrible choice to sell one of their children in order to feed the children that they have at home. I'm talking with Michelle Rickett. It, um, this is a heartbreaking topic. It's also a topic that is um, prevalent everywhere um, and has been exacerbated by COVID-19. We're going to talk about um, as we come out of uh, COVID lockdowns and shutdowns and kids go back to school, um, how how this new COVID generation is going to need to be made newly mobilized 
on this topic and the kinds of ways in which um, kids can talk to other kids when everybody's back uh, present with one another to bring to light things that have that have we know been happening um, behind closed doors uh, under COVID lockdown. So that conversation up next with Michelle Rickett. You can find um, resources about what we're talking about today. You can get engaged. You can become educated and aware at sheissafe.org. We'll be right back. So Michelle Rickett is the founder and CEO of She Is Safe. Her latest book, Forgotten Girls, would recommend that you visit uh, with the ministry at sheissafe.org. Um, Michelle, I, um, I'd love to share a story with you from uh, about a young man that I met at an event in Tampa, Florida, a number of years ago. He was in high school at the time. He's now graduated college. So this, this story is um, probably like six years old. Um, and uh, he he simply came up to talk to me after a, a public conversation that I was having about other things. And he said, are you aware of the human trafficking crisis in this country? And I thought to myself, wow, I love that there's a teenager who's not only aware, but he's so concerned that he wants to be sure that other people are aware. And I said, well, I am aware, but, you know, tell me, you know, you're obviously passionate about this. What, you know, what are you thinking? And he um, had become aware um, that many of these storefronts that were operating along Kennedy Boulevard in Tampa, um, that with the word spa on the front, that they really weren't spas. They really weren't massage parlors. They really were fronts for women being trafficked. They were storefronts for sex. And he he basically took it upon himself to bring an end to it. I mean, he he didn't just go and like tell people who drove drove up like I don't know if you know what's going on here but let me tell you what's going on here but he got police engaged I mean he he really mobilized his community to at least become aware and in some cases um, intervene in really dramatic ways I was reminded of this when we you know heard about these and witnessed these spa shootings in Atlanta in the Atlanta area and I am I I am curious to know if you get heightened conversations, if you get people coming to She Is Safe and asking more questions, when we do start peeling away the layers uh, here in our own communities where many things are simply a storefront for sex? Well, yes, I think a lot of people are um, a little paralyzed. They don't exactly know what to do and they hear such horrible stories and they're not sure how to sort it all out from legitimate businesses that may, you know, do massages as opposed to illicit businesses and the difference between prostitution and human trafficking. So uh, Mm. they're seeking answers. And I think Christians, especially, they want to know is, is, Christ an answer in any of this? And Mm. I can tell you wholeheartedly, yes, indeed, uh, for anyone who's been rescued to have the life that's truly life, uh, they cannot, we cannot have a new identity without uh, coming to Christ. So that's for me, first and foremost, um, when you um, want to know about organizations that are going to make a difference and and help you be a part of that. Look for those that put Christ first. And then um, 
dig a little more deeply below the surface. Um, what we are seeing in um, Atlanta is law enforcement has put together task forces and they are looking to the community to be able to fill in some gaps. Um, in particular, the gap still remains um, for aftercare, the care of people that say the uh, law enforcement does a sting in downtown Atlanta, well then uh, immediately those victims need advocacy, they need a place to stay, they need someone to help them to overcome the trauma of what they've been through. Um, most in the massage industry are um, not um, English speakers. And so they need someone who can translate. Part of the way that these uh, women are locked into this industry that they hate is because they are told that, um, you know, their passports have been confiscated by their handlers and they're told without a passport, you're here illegally and you will go to jail, which we know it's not true, uh, but they need someone to help them navigate all of that. And um, for many who are on the streets and, and choose this as a solution or they're lured in as kids by someone who traffics them, uh, if they are rescued, they're going to need a new family. And mm -hmm. that's what the Lord gave to me. It was a Christian family that took me in and allowed me to build a whole new life with him. So there are a lot of things that the ordinary person can do um, if they're courageous and if they have a sense that the Holy Spirit is saying to them right now, um, I want you to be a part of this, then we simply must not look away, lean in uh, to organizations that make this their entire mission and start getting involved in small ways as you can, and then bigger and bigger opportunities will come. Um, I, I remember a, uh, a pastor friend a number of years ago um, who saw his church on CNN. Um, the, the, the corner outside of his church was the most highly trafficked uh, corner in all of the southeastern United States, and his heart was broken. He went to his knees. He went to the pulpit the next day. And he told his people, like, we, you know, how how is this happening on our corner under our mm -hmm. watch? Um, and his people, his people's hearts were turned um, in an instant, in a moment. And um, older women in his congregation whose homes were large and empty, you know, came forward at the end of the service and said, I have an empty house. Fill it. Fill it with mm -hmm. these women. Fill it with these trafficked mm -hmm. people. Like, I don't know how to do it, but I do have a house with empty rooms. And so I think that what I love about your story and the way that you um, not only share it, but equip others to turn toward people who have been trafficked or are being trafficked and say, I, I have no idea what you're going through or have endured, but I do know a hope and his name is Jesus and I have a home and I've got empty rooms and there's, there, is, there is a way forward for you and it is the way of life. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that I just love so much about what you are doing um, is that it is it is genuinely life giving. It it is life giving and and it's purpose giving too. I, one mm. of the things I love to tell those who have been rescued is that you have special insight 
that God wants to use to help either prevent others from being trafficked or to help restore their lives. He wants to use the very things that are transforming you to help forge you into a servant who can make a tremendous impact. Mm, I love that. I just love that. Um, Michelle, we'd like to connect as many of our listeners as possible with you. Um, we're going to direct you to sheissafe.org. There's a human trafficking prevention kit there that I would recommend that you uh, read and use as a resource. There are several videos posted there to help you understand not only the issue, but what is happening um, through sheissafe.org to intervene. Would love to see you get your church equipped on this uh, topic as well. Michelle Rickett, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Carmen. God bless you. God bless you as well. We'll be right back. All right, don't you just love God and what he's up to today, um, what he's doing through and in the lives of, uh, of people like you and me? Um, how he has transformed individual individual lives and then is give, gives people not only a new identity and belonging, um, but a purpose uh, filled with hope and uh, a purpose that's life-giving to others. I just love it. All right. We, um, we are only an hour in to today's conversations, um, and we have another hour up next. Um, and we're not going to stop. We're going to talk about... Um, how we can confront injustice without compromising the truth. Um, and we're also going to, uh, we're going to talk about global education. Um, it might surprise you to learn that hundreds of millions of children around the world have no access to education. Um, and there is a, a person who is pressing the full force of his life into changing that. Um, so in much the same way that Michelle Rickett is mobilizing um, others to combat human trafficking, we're going to have a conversation um, about how uh, Jimmy Cook is mobilizing others to be the change that they long to see in the world in relationship to global education. So um, it's an equipping day on Mornings with Carmen. Uh, for what do you need to be equipped today? God has already prepared in advance uh, every good work, and he has poured into your life every resource necessary for the accomplishing of his will in and through you. So um, let's get equipped together to walk by faith into the world that God so loves in order that Christ might be glorified and the gospel extended to more and more people. And that we wouldn't just stand around wishing that the world were different, but that we might actually become difference makers in the world. we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.